Hello, friends and adventurers. It's Rob coming in before the episode to tell you that the audio is not going to be great in this one, specifically on my end. I've been spending a lot more time on the road with Misty Mountain Gaming, going to conventions, and having a lot of fun seeing more of the wonderful country we live in. But it does make it harder to record, and in an effort to not put us very far behind on our recording schedule, I've had to record in some less-than-ideal conditions. We did what we could to make it a little easier on the ears, but it's going to be rough compared to the standard that we normally hold ourselves to here at Bardic Twinspiration. I hope it doesn't get too much in the way of your enjoyment and that you still find this episode worth listening to. There's some good stuff in there. Okay, on with the show. Welcome back, friends and adventurers, players and DMs, to Bardic Twinspiration, a topical podcast where my brother and I discuss Dungeons and Dragons. I'm the D&D wannabe. My name is Rob. And I'm Steven. Thanks so much for joining us for yet another week, where, for a change, we're actually going to be talking about some current events in the tabletop role-playing game scene. Yeah, we haven't we haven't talked about very much that is new. I'm pretty staunchly in the camp of I like the stuff that came out closer to the beginning of 5th edition's tenure. You, on the other hand, have typically been excited about new content. But Wizards of the Coast has recently released playtest material for what is probably going to be the next edition of Dungeons & Dragons on their website. Right. Uh, here on Bardic to Inspiration, we haven't really spent a whole lot of time discussing new modules or new adventures or the supplemental books that have been coming out. But this is a step that they are taking in a whole new direction. And in some ways, it really feels that way. And in some ways, it doesn't. But we just thought that this was big enough. This is the first major change to Dungeons & Dragons that has taken place since we started this podcast. And we would be remiss if we didn't take at least one episode to talk about some things that are coming our way. Hell, I think it's the uh, the first major change to D&D since I started playing tabletop role-playing games. I basically started with 5th edition. So, yeah, a lot of what is coming out now, at least currently being termed 1D&D, and a lot of what 1D&D is seems to be familiar. It, it's not, they're not reinventing the wheel, but they are changing some things that are significant enough that we thought we might talk about them. And in preparation for this episode, we didn't. (laughs) That's the the fun thing about this, is that uh, Rob has been on the road so much for his job with Misty Mountain Gaming. They've been having international conventions that not everyone in the company has passports to go to, so Rob has been not only out of town and out of pocket, but out of the country quite a bit lately. So this is one of our first chances since the August 18th announcement to get together and kind of discuss 
this playtest material that we have both read. Which neither of us have tested, by the way. Let's let's go ahead and get that out of the way. We haven't tried this stuff ourselves yet. Yeah, how, how are we going to do that if we haven't even had a chance to sit down and talk about it? Okay. So in a way that's fairly atypical for how we approach these episodes, Rob and I have decided to both sit back with our beverage of choice and just record our initial, more or less unfiltered conversation where we discuss what is coming up next. Right, and we're not going to go down the 21 pages of the new Unearthed Arcana uh, in order to be helpful in case you want to follow along with what we're talking about. We'll link those in the description of the episode, but we're not going to take this item by item. No, no, no. We're just going to talk kind of broad strokes, general impressions, and our feelings on what has changed and what we feel will be changed, what seems like it's coming down the pike. So, I feel like we've qualified this a lot, but I'm going to go ahead and get one more thing out of the way. So, this is the supposed playtest material that was released on August 18th, 2022. This is the first of many uh, kind of test releases, some ideas that the 1D&D development team are going to be putting out in front of us to kind of gauge our reactions. There are a lot of content creators out there right now that are weighing in on this and whether or not this is actually playtest material versus an opportunity for their marketing team to kind of get some feedback. We're not really going to weigh in on that here. As Rob was saying, we're just going to be taking a look at some of the fundamental mechanical changes and some of the implications that that has for the game as it's going to be later on. So, yeah. So are you ready to take a look at this sneak peek and see what's coming up next for D&D Next? Get get it? Because that was what they called 5e for so long before they admitted that it was actually the 5th edition. Because let's face it, this is probably going to end up being 6th edition, even if no one wants to admit it for marketing reasons. Yeah. (laughs) Yes, I'm ready to talk about it. Where do you want to start? Let's start where Wizards of the Coast decided to start. When they did their press releases and their teaser videos and everything, they were putting out a message about how much they understood that 5e was being enjoyed right now and how they wanted to preserve what everyone enjoyed about fifth edition and how the emphasis seemed to be listening to feedback from their player base and kind of streamlining everything clarifying it and cleaning it up Uh, so they're kind of presenting this like it's almost going to be a 5.5 which i think is kind of the term that's been thrown around for several years while this has been going on in development Of course, Wizards of the Coast is not going to actually come out and say anything like that, but that seems to be the intent, is to take the edition that has done so well and has worked so many wonders for Dungeons & Dragons and just make it better rather than fundamentally changing it. Do you feel like that's what's been done? Uh, uh, no asterisk. No asterisk. So... (laughs) If anyone has followed Dungeons and Dragons over the years, which I wasn't a part of it, but I've gone back and I've had a look. I've had a lot of conversations with people that have been into it far longer than me, not limited to, but including The Godfather. Uh, and I've looked into it myself because it's interesting. D and D was not cool. It was not cool to enjoy D and D. It was not a financial success in the years past. I mean, it was. It wasn't a bomb either. I mean, it. it continued and endured but it was that things that nerds played in their basement you know yeah somewhere away from the light of day uh it was something to be enjoyed but it was something to be enjoyed with your close friends privily yes and it's something you didn't 
tell other people you enjoyed or practiced. Right. I feel like that's very much been a change since 5th edition. Yes, it has. 5th edition has been a goldmine for wizards, and it came along with Critical Role and with Stranger Things and with a lot of positive press for the hobby as those people who played D&D in mom's basement in their younger days are now some of the nerds running the world and celebrating their own personal nostalgia and spreading it to everybody else. And this is worthy of receiving that treatment. Dungeons and Dragons is a great hobby, but I think we're going to see people reticent to say goodbye to 5th edition in ways that they weren't for previous editions because it was how so many people were introduced to the hobby, how it achieved mainstream success. And it became a household name. And also, just from a marketing standpoint, do you really want to let go of your cash cow? And I think we're going to see very few major changes, redefining changes in the next edition of D&D, whatever that they, they call it, that fundamentally make it unrecognizable from 5e. Because you don't want to lose that, you don't want to abandon it. That's not to say they're not making changes. That's kind of what this document is about, all the changes that are being made. But they're not making it unrecognizable as d and I don't know. Is, did that kind of answer the question? This is usually why we plan the episodes better. <laughs> yeah, just so you know, listeners, this conversation is usually what we have before we start recording. <laughs> but th- this, is a, this is a peek behind the curtain in a very inadvisable Wizard of Oz sort of, sort of way. What do you what do you think? I am going to try to leave my uh, my marketing side out of this because there I have consumed so much content postulating what the marketing team is doing. I'm I'm going to try to leave all that behind. Um, I do feel like this will eventually be recognized as a new edition of D&D because some of the changes that they are making already in this one little packet that they've dropped on us, this 21 pages of a prospective player's handbook is already making some pretty significant changes. That being said, it's not reinventing the wheel. And so I do think that the people who enjoy 5e are still going to enjoy this new edition. If you want to know whether or not all of the stuff is going to be backwards compatible, no one can say that for sure yet, even though Wizards of the Coast is very much trying to. My personal speculation is not not as much. Um, and there's a lot of reasons for that. I think it probably will be, but it will be like someone playing with a new toy versus someone playing with an old toy. I think they w- it will not be balanced as you would hope it would be. Yes, and I think that's kind of what it's going to come down to. There's a little bit of a power creep whenever Wizard of the Coast puts something out because they want to put something out that is as appealing or more than what currently exists. And even if you can still make a compatible character using the 5th edition player's handbook and use that character in a game of 1D&D, it might not be on par with the character you could have made using the 1D&D handbook. And for that reason, while it might be permissible, it is probably never going to be advisable that you do so. They're going to make 1D&D more appealing in order to make... Well, I mean, quite honestly, so that you will buy it. And Wizards is not afraid of invalidating their previous works just to make you buy a new book. Uh, I mean, not, (laughs) not exactly that. They're trying to improve and streamline the way the game is played. But they're not standing by some of their books 
published for 5e anymore. They're considered legacy content, and you're expected to use the updated content instead. Uh, my favorite book for 5e for years was Volo's Guide to Monsters, and everything in there is basically being ignored by... Because of Mordekaiden's Monsters of the Multiverse. Correct. And I feel like when 1D&D comes out and everything is quote-unquote backwards compatible, we're going to see the stuff from the player's handbook be legacy content. And we're going to see the original monster manual and Dungeon Master's Guide become legacy content as they move in a new direction. And you know what else I think? I think 1D&D was sitting next to Pathfinder 2nd Edition and maybe cheating off its test a little bit. <laughs> there, there, There's some things that D&D uh, historically has, at least in 5th Edition has not had and has not needed and we we're saying that we are streamlining things but they are complicating different aspects that Pathfinder has complicated and they are streamlining different aspects that Pathfinder has streamlined and trying I think to to sort of bridge the gap between those systems and we'll probably get to these elements as we continue talking but D&D is starting to lose some of the things that made it unique and is starting to take some things that other systems are known for. So I have never played Pathfinder 2nd Edition, but I loved Pathfinder 1st Edition, and I've heard great things about 2nd Edition. If Pathfinder 2nd Edition is, I mean, not even as good a system as I have heard, but if it just is a good system, then I would contend that Dungeons & Dragons Wizards of the Coast should learn from what it is that they're doing, both as a way to improve itself and potentially to appeal to that player base, you know, I, I, I don't know. I feel like I'm still getting into, you know, marketing and sales stuff. But, you know, let, I mean, let's face it, Dungeons & Dragons is a game, but Dungeons & Dragons is also a business. But if they take a page from the book of another tabletop role-playing game, that wouldn't bother me. Especially not with all the good things I've heard about Pathfinder and my good experience with it. If they take D&D and make it a little bit crunchier in one D&D, that's probably just going to appeal to me more. <laughs> And honestly, they've been kind of going in the opposite direction. Five E was the the soft, the the least crunchy, the, <laughs> the crunch, yeah. the crunch lightest of the editions up to this point. The the softball, yeah. It, it emphasized role play a little more than tactical and strategically advantageous combat, and that's where D and D began. If anyone didn't know, D and D was a war game more than it was a role-playing game back in the day. And you could role-play your war game, but you couldn't take the war game out of D&D. Now you kind of can, and I feel like uh, maybe that's coming back a little bit. We'll see. Okay, so in a much more general sense, uh, is there, are there any more broad strokes that you want to paint before we start going into this like line by line? I, I haven't had a lot of conversations with anyone from our community for the podcast or from Misty Mountain Gaming's community or just with my D&D playing friends of anyone who is asking for 6th edition. I, th I think 5e has been doing pretty well and granted it's been around for a while. They are still coming up with new content for it and we're starting to see that power creep and that would lead one to believe that maybe it's time for a reset. But what what's your feelings? Do we need a new edition? Is it time? Are there problems? Yeah, for my money, yes, I think it is. And I have basically two reasons. One, it's been eight years. 
there has been a lot of player feedback over the last eight years that it would be strange if they did not listen to it. There, there have been new TTRPG systems that have been released in the last eight years. It would be weird if they didn't learn from those. In Dungeons & Dragons 5th Edition, they have made so many changes to the way that things work. Like The fundamental way that you make your character has changed as they've released these supplemental books. Tasha's Cauldron of Everything that released in 2020 gave you so many new player options and so many ways to change the rules or break the rules of character creation. So many improvements, well, you know, at least from a mechanical sense, whether or not you appreciate them in the whole, as a whole is to each their own. But I think that it is time to go back through and to codify all of those changes, condense them, and give you one book with one way to make a character. Yes. First of all, that that is a wonderful dream world you live in. <laughs> because the, the different books that change the way the game is played is as much of part of D&D and Pathfinder and some of these legacy RPG systems tradition as much as rolling d20s even if we get sixth edition they're going to release tasha's for sixth edition and they're going to release xanathar's for sixth edition and they're going to release the monster manual part two and whatever whatever they do but yeah their their philosophy on how characters should be created how encounters should be run and how monster stat blocks should look has definitely changed over the years. And that's actually one of the larger changes that we are staring down as they're rolling out this new 1D&D content. Right. Well, And I don't personally expect, and no one should, for change to stop once 1D&D is released. Okay, It has been eight years since 5th edition has been released, and just look at all the stuff that they've put out and look at all the new options and the changes that they've made. That's not going to stop in two years once 5th edition has been 10 years old and they release 1D&D. But I think that, yeah, probably over the course of a decade, you should probably try to sum some things up. Clarify the things that needed clarifying sum up the things that are spread out across multiple books and just give us a new starting point to move forward from. So let's talk about some of those changes that they're making uh, specifically to the character creation process because that's some of the things that will be most immediately felt if you transition to using this playtest content at your table. It's going to be the first thing that you encounter both in the playtest content and when you're attempting to run a session of this. When you, when you invite your friends over and you say, hey, we're going to try out the playtest material, the first thing they have to do is they need to make a character. So the first thing that I noticed and cared about when talking about which races you can choose, and, and we're not going to go through all the different races. No, no, we're not. I will say I'm kind of, kind of excited about what they did with gnomes and dwarves in particular, if you enjoy those races. Check out the subtle changes that were made to those two. Uh, and see how you feel about them. I think they are just out-and-out improvements. But something that I have talked about before on this podcast, I believe, and if not, definitely uh, on my streams and on the YouTube channel, is that I really like when there is a distinct racial identity in D&D, where playing a Dragonborn character and a Goliath character and a Halfling character feels different and is different from a mechanical standpoint. 
And they've scaled back the differences between the races in recent years in D&D. You have character options where you can change certain aspects of each race to make it fit more with your ideal for your particular character, your particular example of that race. And they have taken that further for one D&D. Right. Uh, you actually have not talked about this philosophy on the podcast yet. This has been have I not? one of the d- topics for discussion <laughs> since basically the beginning. So it's been on our uh, on our drawing board for about a year. Since the release of Tasha's Cauldron of Everything, Rob and I have had very conflicting opinions about everything that's presented therein, specifically where it involves character creation. Because Rob is of the opinion that the lore should be felt and should be consistent when making the characters. They should all be distinct, as he was saying, and that specifically translated to things like ability scores. And I was of the opinion that being, I guess, mechanically minded as I am, I would like to be able to make my character concept work mechanically just as well as any other character concept. So if I wanted to play a dwarf sorcerer, I did not want to feel remissed for not having made a dragonborn sorcerer or, you know, something that would have given me an increase to my charisma stat, which would be integral to my character uh, playing the class that I did. I wanted to be able to play the sort of character that I wanted to play as the class that I felt best expressed that or that matched the most consistently with how I wanted to play in that campaign. So that's been a big topic of discussion for us just kind of over the course of the past two years and we've always had it planned to have an episode about that where we kind of waxed philosophical about what it was that we expected from a game of D&D and now here comes one D&D with these changes <laughs> taking the optional rules and Tasha's and codifying them in this playtest material which we can assume is going to be fairly consistent with one D&D when it's released the fact that they are baking it in is just moving that topic forward. And these changes, uh, by the way, I still hope to have that conversation with you at some point, just from a philosophical standpoint of world building and kind of an RPG philosophy. So I'll try not to get too bogged down in it today, because that's not what we're here to talk about. Mm -hmm. But I imagine with your feelings on the changes that came about with Tasha's, that you are quite excited by these changes, because racial ability score improvements have been removed entirely. Now, you get a few cute little perks for choosing the race that you do, kind of what we might have considered secondary and more incidental racial traits from the player's handbook and later publications. Carry over, and those are part of your racial identity from a mechanical standpoint. And generally speaking, like I said with the Gnome and the Dwarf, I think they're a step up. They've made them a little bit cooler, a little bit more useful, but they have taken away that ability score element and put it elsewhere. But you're excited about this, I imagine. Fairly so, yeah. Because this is one of those instances where I do feel like they were listening to the player base and they found that this is something like these optional rules that were presented in Tasha's that we've been using were fairly well received. And so they're just taking them and codifying them as part of the new rule set. It used to be that selecting your race actually was about a third of your character. It made a very big difference and gave you a lot of different pieces to play with when you were going through that character creation process. By removing the ability scores from your ancestry, 
that feels like they've kind of taken the teeth out of that. Now, don't get me wrong, the traits that they give you, things like you know the ability to cast spells or your dragon's breath or flight or different things like that are still very important. But the main things that you're going to be getting from your race are your lifespan, your speed, your size, and your creature type. And creature type, I'm learning, is actually fairly significant. Like within the past couple of weeks, maybe the last month or two, I have had to go back and reread so many spells because I'm finding that they are curated to target humanoids. And there are an increasingly large number of non-humanoid player characters. Yeah. When satyrs were first introduced in the Mythic Odysseys of Theros, I initially, for that reason, did not welcome them in my games. And I love satyrs. They're a big part of my childhood, fawns and satyrs and the Chronicles of Narnia. Narnia. Exactly. And I love Greek mythology and lots of mythologies, actually. And satyrs are this fascinating element that are very deeply tied (laughs) into the uh, creation story of my homebrew world. But I didn't want people to play them if they were going to be fae, because a lot of spells and game effects meant to target player characters would not work on them. Or I thought maybe just making them fey, but also humanoid, like some other editions and game systems have done, giving you multiple types so that multiple things would affect you or not affect you. But D&D has kind of doubled down on that. And you're right, there are multiple races now that don't count as human, and it makes some game effects cumbersome or awkward, or it's a get-out-of-jail-free card or something to that effect. So... That, in particular, I'm not super-duper wild about, honestly. I mean, I have I have come around on it. I'm playing a satyr in our Wednesday night game on Misty Mountain Streaming, uh, Cheshire the Bard. But I still, it, it doesn't thrill me that I know that I have an out for a lot of things. I, I don't mind my player character being challenged. I don't want them to have a get-out-of-jail-free card. I want them to have to break out of jail. (laughs) Right. Right, and I have been in a play-by-post game for the last several months, and there are a lot of changelings and a couple of fairies and things like that that, you know, we participate in weekly sparring matches in PvP for, you know, some pretty nominal prizes and things, but it's a whole new consideration if you built your character to engage in PvP and then you come up against the fae and suddenly you can't hold person or you can't dominate person. You know, suddenly you're having to reach for the other end of the spell book. Things like hold monster, dominate monster, those spells are a lot higher level and they're more taxing on your resources if you even have them unlocked. But I don't think that most games are participating in PvP. So, you know, maybe that just becomes a challenge for the dungeon master, but it is a challenge for someone. But enough on that. So they took the ability score increases from the races. Where then did it go? So they put it with your character's background, which is not the worst place they could have put it, I'll admit. Um, I I think perhaps there were, there's a logical conclusion that they did not jump to, But they did put it somewhere that it makes good sense. If your character worked as a blacksmith, it would make sense that they have an increased strength from swinging that hammer all day. Or if they worked as a farmer, they probably have a decent wisdom 
or maybe even intelligence for getting their crops to grow. And if they worked as an entertainer or a con man, of course, their charisma should probably be higher than someone who did the blacksmithing or the farming. It, it makes sense. I don't hate it. Would you have rather seen the ability score increase tied to class or something? N- no. Uh, so, so well, what was the um, the obvious choice that you said it, you felt like they skipped over? So, if your race's physical and mental attributes are not going to be tied to their biology, you're going from nature to nurture, right? To what you actually spent your time doing, what you spent your time honing. And that makes a certain degree of sense. I definitely think that's where your skills should come from. I would be fine if all of your skills moved from your class to your background, because that just makes good logical sense to me. Right, right. And to be fair, most of them did. True. A couple of races still have the odd proficiency thrown here or there, but pretty much that all of that stuff has been moved to backgrounds. But if we're doing all of this in the name of customization, if we're doing all of this in the name of your character being unique, and we're taking it away from tying it to particular aspects about the character, so many other game systems just say, when you create your character, give yourself a boost to something. Boost something by two, boost something else by one, maybe reduce another thing by one. And I'm surprised with all of the freedom that... 1D&D is touting itself to have why they didn't just say and do whatever you want. You know, it's funny that you should mention that because the way that the rules are set up in this playtest content, they actually do because the default background is customizable. The default background says when you determine your character's ability scores, choose two of them, increase one by two and increase the other by one, or alternatively uh, choose three ability scores and increase them each by one. Then grab two proficiencies of your choice, one tool proficiency of your choice, and one rare and one standard language, followed by one feat and 50 gold pieces worth of equipment. So the default character background is fully customizable. They do, however, immediately follow that up with a bunch of sample backgrounds that they have put together by following these rules, which I have heard a couple of different opinions on. Personally, I like that they are starting by saying, here's the process to make your own. Which, frankly, we've been doing that in our games for how long? Well, actually, I think it's been since you started running 5th edition for us, <laughs> uh, because you initially said, and I was like, hey, the, you know, this, the options that are presented here don't really match my character concepts. Is it okay if I take a different proficiency? And you're like, of course, you know, this is a limitation that is put on you purely to increase flavor, but with your character concept, that is actually actively working against the flavor that you're trying to give your character. Uh, it is mechanically equivalent, so by all means, you can take a different skill if you want to. So personally, I I value this as being the default. I think it was the Dungeon Master's Guide, maybe the Player's Handbook, told you how to cut, make your own background. And it laid out rules, very similar to this, actually, for how to create your own custom background. And that's basically what I've done ever since I discovered that that was an option. Because in spite of the impression that I might give off to listeners or to you, I don't mind giving my players options. I just like them to be grounded in something in the world, either in the history or in the lineage or in the cultural traditions or something. You just have to show your work when you're turning in your homework. 
Yeah, kind of. So I actually, I guess I did miss that little bit where where that is the default as I jumped into the sample backgrounds. Um, which backgrounds, by the way, I will say they lost their background feature. I don't think a lot of people besides me are going to miss that. I liked having kind of a social superpower of <laughs> either yeah. always having a safe haven or being able to have allies or enemies somewhere out there in the world, have a false identity or knowing a secret of the universe. I think that was the hermit background is Mm -hmm. you spent so much time alone, you just learned a cosmic secret quite by accident. I just like those things. And I know that they're not gone forever, and a dungeon master can reinsert them at will. But it was just nice to have that on my character sheet somewhere. Right. And, you know, maybe those will come back in some other way, but you're right. They are definitely removed from the backgrounds. Personally, if I had to pick between my background feature and a feat, I'm I'm probably going to take the feat, and that is what they give you now. Every character uh, during the character creation process will gain a feat. I think you're on record as saying that you dislike feats. I think we've <laughs> talked about that at length before. <laughs> uh, that would not, that would not be me. <laughs> that, that's I, that would be a case of identity theft. Mm. Um, <laughs> but yes. You now, instead of getting a background feature, like you said, a social superpower, that's an interesting but probably accurate way to put it, you now get a different sort of superpower, one that can be social or that can be combat-oriented, and you get to choose it, much like you did before using a custom origin. But the difference is now you get a first-level feat, and that is something that I missed when I was reading over this document the first time we are going back to having feats that are level-specific. So let's go ahead and get this out in the air. We often have given feats, or at least certainly I have in my previous games, to players at early levels. Right, yeah. It helps build an identity for yourself in the party. It helps give you a thing. <laughs> I think we talked about having a thing and my placing value of that in our feats episode. <laughs> yes, yes, you did. It's nice to have that, and Variant Humans, that's a perk that they get in 5th edition. If you play Variant Human, you get a feat at first level. And it's so fun, and it's so tantalizing. That's one of the reasons they're so popular. It's difficult to pass up the opportunity to take a feat because they're so powerful. You're only supposed to get a very limited number of those things in the game unless you're playing a fighter, and even then you have to wait several levels before you can get one. So having a feat at first level, great move. I think that's... Good. I'm not afraid of my party being full of characters who are talented. Right. And I think that this is another one of those instances where a lot of people were already doing it, ourselves included. And so they just went ahead and made that rules approved. Instead of this being something that your DM is now homebrewing by allowing you to take a feat at first level, they are just going to go ahead and say, everyone can do this. But they have placed a restriction upon it. You can't take as a level one human in one D&D who does get an additional feat for being human, you can't just take Polar Master and Sentinel and just go ahead and have that nasty little dirty combo going from level one. That is awesome, but it's not really very balanced. And I think that this is an attempt by Wizards of the Coast to allow their players to have these feats, but to also give the game master a little bit of a break by not allowing them to go completely busted while they're doing it. Speaking of uh, not going completely busted, compared to the feats we've already got for 5e, 
These kind of stink. What, really? You don't like these? The, no, they're not. I mean, I, you, I think you pointed out Tavern Brawler to me in this, and Tavern Brawler is a good step. But the Lucky Feet is not quite as good. The Healer Feet's kind of weird. The Crafter Feet kind of sucks. The Savage Attacker is... Eh. The Skilled Feet is <laughs> not nearly so great as the Skill Expert Feet. And maybe that's just because these are the first level feats. Maybe they're going to get bigger and badder as you go up in level. Or maybe they're just going to touch on more significant mechanics. But I don't know. Not, uh, And I guess they're, they need to be a little bit weaker if you're going to be able to get every character getting one at first level. Right. But they just they really just don't impress me all that much. Well, personally, I felt like these were steps in a pretty positive direction. So in an interview with Jeremy Crawford and Todd Kenrick, uh, I could put a link to it in the description, but you can also just Google it and find it if you want to. They talked for about an hour about some of the things that have been announced and the things that are in this quote-unquote playtest material. And one of the things that they do discuss is the feats. And I, I kind of get where they're going with this, with giving people these options, with tweaking them to make them useful for maybe more than one particular playstyle or more than one particular person, and giving characters some more options. Okay, so you had mentioned the healer feat. So that was one of the ones that they had specifically mentioned because well, the thing about the old healer feat is that you would think that if you were a character that healed people, then you would take this feat and you would be better at it. But in actuality, it was to take a character who was not good at healing people and make them passing fair. And it really didn't do a very good job of that either. Like, the irony of the old healer feat that was originally introduced to 5th edition is that a healer didn't want to take it, and someone who wanted to become a healer did not become a healer by taking it. So... This version actually kind of fixes both of those problems because it now has two traits, one of which is Battlefield Medic, which says that if you have a healer's kit, you can expend one of its uses as an action to heal a creature within five feet of you. You allow them to spend their hit dice plus your proficiency bonus and gain that many hit points. So it doesn't cost you anything other than a use of your healer's kit in your action. It uses their hit dice, and they get some more hit points. You can do this at any time that you meet those conditions in combat. And instead of just stabilizing someone like the old version, they will actually gain hit points. You could bring someone up with this. Or if they were not down, you could bolster their hit points with this. And you could do this also you know, outside of combat. Uh, in case one of your teammates got hit by a trap or something, the way that it used to be, if they weren't, you know, going down or dying, even with this feat, you couldn't really help them very much. But now, you can not only do that, if you are a healer who can administer magical healing, then this allows you to re-roll ones when you're applying magical healing to someone. So now it is useful to basically any character who wants to heal, whether or not they are already leaning that way based on their class and spell decisions. I'm not saying that these feats are worse than all of the feats that came before them. As we discussed, there are some real stinkers of feats that came out with 5th edition. I'm just saying they're not all improvements. But I will say this, these feats often, and it's such a small sampling, I'm sure there will be more when the finished product arrives, a lot of them are based in some way on your character's proficiency bonus. So we're not getting rid of proficiency bonus. I'm sure that's going to make several people very sad. 
but it is weirdly one of my favorite points of 5th edition and something that is uniquely 5e and uniquely Dungeons and Dragons and it looks like that's going to be sticking around. A lot of the feats on this list have some aspect of them that is based on that proficiency bonus which does increase as you level. So now we're looking at feats that get better with time, which only a few feats that we have in 5e had before now. Things that doubled your proficiency bonus to a check, for example, or feats that gave you, like, tough, that gave you some hit points every time you leveled up. Mm -hmm. Most feats in 5e are as good as they're ever going to get the moment you get them. These have a limited potential to grow alongside your character. Right, and I actually think that's a very good design decision. You'll notice that the newer books that have been released rely on proficiency bonus a lot more, and I think that that there is value in that. I also note that none of these feats, possibly because they're first-level feats, or possibly this is just a direction that they're going in general, too early to say, I think it's because they're first-level feats, offer you any ability score increases. So I believe the old version of Skilled, correct me if I'm wrong, used to give you a ability score increase along with it, did it not? Uh, we're going to check that now. I don't think Skilled did. I think Skill Expert did. Oh, okay. You're correct. Okay, it didn't do that. Yeah. So. And that's probably just because they're already being very generous with how you can allot your ability score increases when you create your background, but not something that's going to be available off the bat. But they do also offer you some options you know that there are multiple bullet points on a lot of these things and some of them allow you more decisions and if there's one thing that i like in my tabletop role-playing games it's more decisions to make on a turn-by-turn basis things like even something as simple as the alert feat which gives you that static bonus to your initiative rolls it now also offers you the initiative swap ability allowing you to give your initiative to another member of the party in exchange for theirs, allowing them to potentially significantly move up the ladder in terms of going first. Which I love that effect. I don't know why it's on the alert feet, but I love that effect. <laughs> uh, I'm a, Like I said, I'm just generally a fan of anything that gives you options on a turn-by-turn -turn basis, and I, I do believe that that does that. Really, you know, just options at any point, because tinkering with the pieces that they give you to play with. Like I find the same fascination in building Dungeons and Dragons characters that other people find in playing with Legos. And so the more different types of Legos and the more different colors of Legos, the happier a little player I will be. Also, there's something that they mentioned in that interview that I referenced earlier between Kenrick and Crawford, where they're talking about adding in feet stacking or feet nesting where you have feats at higher levels that require prerequisites that i'm a little less excited about we don't have any of those to view at the moment i'll kind of have to take a look at those and see how i feel about them when they are eventually revealed i'm very rarely excited about prerequisites because i feel like that is limiting your options but uh, it, it's all speculation at this point until they release another one of these sneak peeks. That was my least favorite thing about Pathfinder. And when a 5th edition game that I was playing in transitioned to Pathfinder, that was a big frustration for me. I wanted to play a veteran, grizzled human fighter who used a flail to loop that chain Actually, his flail was made of his old slave manacles. He would use those to wrap it around an enemy's leg and trip him up. That's a thing you can do in Pathfinder. If you take about four feats, 
<laughs> and to get to the feat that I wanted, I had to take another feat, a feat that I never intended to use, which unlocked another feat that I never intended to use, which unlocked a feat that might have kind of helped, which unlocked the feat that I actually wanted. And God, I hope we're not going that direction with 5th edition. <laughs> the, the boys at WotC have built up a lot of faith with me. They've typically been a company, especially with 5th edition, that enjoys telling the players yes. And I, as a player, occasionally, want to be told yes. As a dungeon master, I want to tell my players, yes, you can do that. Yes, you can try it. Roll for it, see if it works. Not, mm, you can't do that, though. <laughs> not, not, not until you take this feat, and then this feat, and then this feat. Well, it's not as though Wizards of the Coast and 5th Edition have never had prerequisites, because they have... With regard to multi-classing, you have to meet some certain ability score prerequisites, which are fairly nominal and make sense. And really, you know, how effective of a sorcerer are you going to be without a 13 in charisma? Uh, ditto wizards, ditto clerics. But the main place that I've seen this pop up, on my characters at least, is with warlock invocations. Because a lot of those will require that you have the Eldritch Blast cantrip. Because, you know, they modify the Eldritch Blast cantrip. That only makes sense. Or that you have taken a certain pact in order to be able to unlock this ability. And a lot of them are very thematic, and really, why would you want to take this one if you didn't have that? But there are many of them that are level-locked. And that makes a lot of sense. But it really hurts sometimes not to be able to take some of those higher-level invocations. <laughs> yeah, I, I mean... Yeah, I'm not going to back you up on that one. It's, it's some, th some things are just too powerful to have at low levels. You don't get to ha take a feat that gives you fireball at level one. It's, right, that's just right. not how the game works. So they are now applying that philosophy to feats as well. But I want to go back to something that you said a minute ago when you said that you enjoy when you can say to a player, let's roll a d20 and see if that works. Mm -hmm. Because that is possibly one of the most significant changes that has been made in this playtest material. I'm referring, of course, to the concept of the D20 test. Rob, what are these changes and how do you feel about them? So first of all, it's, it's just nomenclature, right? They're, they're going to be instituting mechanics that affect D20 tests. And that was previously referred to as an ability check. I believe, just basically anything except a saving throw or an attack roll that involved rolling a d20. Now a d20 test is literally any time you touch a d20 in the game. Yes. Whether it be an attack roll, an ability check, a saving throw, or a skill check, or initiative, all of the above. And they're simply coming up with a term that can encompass all of those things. And that is overdue. Well, that is just good housekeeping. That is some of the changes that I was talking about earlier when I said, I think it's time for a new edition so that they can just clarify some things, so that they can make things more concise and easier to understand. And I think that the D20 test is pretty much the poster child for that concept. Now, they are making a change with this, which I don't love, but... If you read all of the playtest material, and I hope they emphasize this more, frankly, when they actually eventually publish this stuff, it's not as bad as it looks on the surface to me. But a lot of people were doing this at their tables and having a great time already. And I'm talking about critical success and failures on D20 tests. Mm -hmm. 
So now, when you roll a d20, regardless of what you are rolling, whether it is an attack roll or a saving throw or a skill check, whatever it is, if you roll a 1, you fail, regardless of how good your character is at a particular skill or a particular saving throw, you might have modifiers out the wazoo to where you would have passed the check no matter what you rolled. So what's the point in rolling? But now there is always a chance of failure. Similarly, if you roll a 20 on a d20 test, you succeed. Regardless of your training or qualifications or natural abilities, you will succeed. Uh, there's there's a little more to say, but please uh, initial impressions. What do you, how do you feel? <laughs> this is possibly the most. I don't know what the word I'm looking for is here. This is divisive D and D philosophy at its heart. Right. The question is: Do you rely more upon the chance of the die, or do you rely more upon the modifiers that you're able to accumulate? Which of those is more important to you? Which of those makes the game more real and more enjoyable? The possibility that literally anyone could fail at something, you know, keeping the story interesting, or the possibility that there could be someone out there who is too good to fail. Or too bad to succeed. Right. That there exist in the world impossible tasks that cannot be surmounted by anyone or fairly difficult tasks that cannot be surmounted by Gareth, right? <laughs> right. So I will, I will qualify this the way that the playtest material qualifies it. Because initially, I was afraid that this set a bad precedent. And I still think that it sets a bad precedent. But at least they have the safety net of the sentence, the DM determines whether a D20 test is warranted in any given circumstance. So if Gareth, is he a gnome or a halfling? I forget. A uh, halfling. The bumbling halfling walks up to a castle wall and tries to pick it up on his back. The dungeon master has the right, dare I say, has the duty to say, <laughs> you fail without calling for a roll. But now, if you allow a roll, you are opening yourself to the possibility of a success. Because the rules now say, if you roll a 20... You succeed. And previously, this was relegated only to combat. If you made an attack roll, specifically an attack roll, and rolled a 20, no matter your qualifications, you were a lucky son of a gun who found the chink in the dragon's scaly armor, and you got a little bit of damage in. Lucky you. Literally, lucky you. And the same with natural ones, critical failures. No matter how qualified you are to hit a goblin with an AC of... 11, who was only halfway through getting dressed, no matter what your modifiers are, there was always the possibility that you just screw it up and miss. But now that applies to everything. And personally, I'm divided on how this goes because I enjoy making my character to be good at things. And I enjoy the possibility, like in, in the back of my mind, I'm like, you know what? There's this one thing that I can do that it is literally impossible for me to be a bad at. That's why I enjoy skills like reliable talent, which now that I think of it is probably just gone. No, I mean, I would argue <laughs> reliable talent means you don't have to roll. You never have to risk automatic failure. 
And that is probably something that you would have to argue, but we will see once they give us a peek at some of these classes. But on the other hand, I understand that, you know, let's just say in combat again, there is a character out there. I am dangerously close to having this character. I have made an 11th level multi-class bard. I am dangerously close to having a character that cannot have his spells miss. There are certain creatures out there that will be completely incapable of making their saving throws. That if I cast hold person on the right thing, they will never get out unless someone breaks my concentration. And to be on the receiving end of that as a player character is a big case of the feel-bads. You know, if an enemy is targeting your worst saving throw, there is some comfort in knowing that I at least have a 5% chance of getting out of this. It might be hope against hope, but at least there's a reason to pick up that die every turn. Yeah, I'm I'm a little split on it too. I I don't really love it because I like your character's qualifications mattering. Um, and sometimes your character's lack of qualifications mattering. Yeah. If I have a character that has a two wisdom, I mean, it's it's very unlikely, but it could happen that I have a big negative to my wisdom and an enemy tries to charm me with a high enough DC. It just, it doesn't matter what I roll. I'm going to fail because it's me and it's them and it's a charm spell and I do not have the mental wherewithal on my character sheet to pass this test, so I fail. And I think if I am playing that kind of character, I'm content dealing with those circumstances. And it would be weird to me if I rolled a 20 minus 4 and still beat the DC 18 spell save because I got lucky somehow. How do I roleplay that? How do I roleplay my <laughs> unwise imbecile passing that? I, I don't know. It's, Here, well, here's the how same, you do The it. same way with strength checks. If the halfling who spent all of his life as a candle maker is in a strength contest against the Goliath, how can I justify the Goliath rolling a 1 and the Halfling rolling a 20? And I think I might have the answer to some of those for you. And I'm going to try to do my best to sum up the totality of the other opinions that I have found on these matters and see just kind of how you think about them. For one, how would you justify that sort of thing? External factors coming into play. There is, ch there is chance that is out there in the world uh, that may swing things in your favor. Maybe the Goliath that you're arm wrestling gets distracted or something like that. You know, you know, if you're make, trying to make an attack roll against someone who has a ridiculous uh, AC, you know, perhaps it's a ricochet or something like, you know, there is a little bit of random chance, a little bit of dumb luck and a little bit of grounded, explainable factors that just the stars align and something happens in your favor. And I think that those can create some pretty good narrative moments that, you know, may not be justified on your character sheet, but that could still take place within the world. So the halfling tries to pick up the Goliath. He squats down, he girds his loins and lifts, and then a sudden gust of wind, and the <laughs> Goliath suddenly loses 50 pounds. All that work has paid off, and the halfling lifts it above his head. <laughs> you know what? I didn't say it was going to make it easy for you dungeon masters, okay? I just said it would be a memorable moment. Um, okay. Other other potential things. Then there's also the major thing, like as you mentioned before, the DM gets to determine when a D20 gets to be rolled at all. If a DM looks at your passive perception of 18 
or higher and decides, yeah, you don't need to roll. You see this guy, right? That is a justifiable circumstance, just as justifiable as when the uh, halfling goes to pick up that Goliath and just say, sorry, bud, you, you can't do it. It's just physically impossible for you, little guy. But aren't you cute? And then there is the third position that I heard online, which is, and, and this one is a little bit iffy, and I, I feel like, you know, this is either not good advice or it is some next level advice that I don't understand yet, but I'm going to give it to you anyway. The rolling a natural one means that the test fails, or rolling a natural 20 means that the test succeeds. It does not mean that the player is going to get the exact outcome that they expected when they rolled that die. And I forget who it was that presented this idea, but I think that they were arguing that just something favorable will occur. Something like, I'm trying to, uh, I hate to be that guy, but I'm trying to seduce the princess at the gala. I'm at the party and I'm trying to be my charming self, but I'm very not charismatic. But we roll the d20 anyway, and we roll a natural 20, so you succeed... But it's really her finding your your babbling and your lack of savoir-faire somewhat charming in a, in a bumbling sort of way. And so you are endeared to her. Not that, you know, you didn't put your foot in your mouth. You didn't offend her. She doesn't hate you. She probably doesn't quite want to also, you know, continue. Well, it wasn't an out-and-out success. She isn't inviting you back to her room. But your standing has improved in her eyes. Is that the kind of thing you're talking Something about here? Something like that. Like, I don't feel like it's an exactly in a monkey's paw sort of situation, but you are seeking to accomplish a goal, and you have taken steps towards accomplishing that goal, even if you have not outright done it in the way that you intended. So yeah, Not so flashy, but effective. Maybe you're trying to pick up that Goliath as that little halfling in order to impress them and let them know, you know, to prove your worth and show them that you're capable of taking on this task that there it is that they're putting out for you, right? So maybe you don't clear this guy. Maybe you don't, you know, deadlift him and get him off the ground. or You don't pick him up over your head. Maybe you're not exactly hoisting this guy aloft, but whatever it is that you do impresses him, and he's willing to give you the job. And, and all of that is fair. And again, maybe the dungeon master says, you're a weak-ass halfling who made candles all your life. You cannot pick up the Goliath. Maybe that's a circumstance where a role is not welcomed. I don't know. I, it sets a weird precedent. I think that we're going to find a lot of players asking to roll things mm -hmm. or leave things to chance just for that 5% chance of them automatically succeeding where they otherwise would not or could not. You want me to tell you something else that's weird that you may or may not have noticed in that paragraph that you were reading from earlier that might also have more implications is that it specifically states that in order to be warranted... A D20 test must have a target number, a DC, which it, it's weird that it doesn't say DC anymore. That's interesting. I didn't really think about that. But a D20 test must have a target number no less than 5 and no greater than 30, which I think is kind of already the scale that the Dungeon Master Guide uses. Correct. There's, there's no reference in any published work to a higher DC than 30 or lower than 5. But I do feel like there have been some cases wherein such was homebrew. And it is interesting that it is now illegal to set a DC above 30. Because if it is above 30, it is technically, per the rules, an impossible unwarranted check. Uh, first of all, 
that that was true already but uh, it, it was pretty much I mean, the practically the, the, true. if you roll above a 30 gods take notice i think is what i've heard somewhere well you can roll above a 30 but dcs are not set above a 30 yeah now I, I, there was literally a i don't remember where this story came from but I, I think it was one of those um can't remember the name of the guy he reads people's reddit stories on D D, talking about where they got a performance check that exceeded 30 and approached 40 or something like that and an actual god came down and decided to play in the band with him. <laughs> that and that that is the sort of thing that you should expect in your game when you exceed thirty. I play a bard. I help people get over thirty all the time. I'm also just really delighted that you said it was now illegal to do this. <laughs> like there will be legal ramifications. Like wizards will bust down the door to your game room. <laughs> And slap you in irons for setting a DC above 30. Well, I'm just saying, you know, if, if you got those rule, rules lawyers out there at your table, then then you, you cannot do this. <laughs> or if you do, you'll just have to put up with them. That's the sort of situation you're gearing up for. There's, uh, there's technically nothing that a DM can't do as long as they're okay with breaking the rules. So let's talk about another thing that's in, in this same area. If you're following along with us in the PDF linked in the description once again. We're in that same area. You'll notice two things in the rolling a 20 paragraph there. First of all, you notice that a player character, when they roll a 20, gains an additional benefit that is not extended towards the dungeon master or any of the NPCs or any of the monsters. And that award, that reward for just being lucky, is inspiration. Previously an optional rule in 5th edition, now a Seemingly pretty important part of 1D&D, because as you read through this PDF, it just keeps coming up. This went from being an optional rule and a way for a dungeon master to reward players for increasing their own enjoyment of the game, whether it be through creative problem solving or through clever role play or you know if it's at rob's table some some half decent half baked puns hey this is don't, don't come for my puns now <laughs> the one D D system now has a way to generate it as a character you're no longer reliant on whether or not your dm feels like handing it out this is something that you can generate uh, and you can generate in multiple ways there are some class abilities that can generate it. There are some feats that can generate it. Uh, just being a human nets you one of these things after you rest. But the main way to get them is when you roll a 20, one is automatically generated and added to your character sheet. Now, you can only have one at a time, but if you already have one, you can pass it off to another party member, meaning that there's a decent chance that you know throughout the course of an adventuring day, your entire party is going to have at least one instance of inspiration as they go through their day. The funny thing about inspiration, as it is currently set up, is that the more dice you roll, the more likely you are to get a 20. When you get a 20, you get inspiration, which then allows you to roll more dice, creating this Which little... increases the chance that exactly. you'll get a 20. It's a self-fulfilling prophecy now. Yes, that once you get inspiration, you are more likely to continue to get inspiration. And I mean, it's not like a particularly high probability. It's not like in danger of breaking anything, but it it is a system that rewards itself. The main thing that I see with this is the possibility of inspiration farming. By which I mean, the more D20s that are rolled in an adventuring day, the more likely you are to get inspiration. And, you know, this is, I'm talking about like roles outside of combat. Like if players constantly asking to make roles 
as part of their skill checks now. Because the more dice they roll, the higher that likelihood that they're going to start that next combat with a pocket inspiration. So I would actually encourage DMs to very judiciously evaluate in the one D&D system when D20 tests are and are not warranted. Which it did mention up above, but if a roll is not necessary, then judiciously evaluate whether or not it is warranted and or should be allowed. While we're still on inspiration, I will say, first of all, that the DM can also award inspiration to a character who's done something that is particularly heroic or amusing. So my puns are valid. Thank you very much. Uh, thank you for coming to my TED Talk. They put that in the rules. <laughs> and I think this was a thing in 5e. It's definitely something that's been true at my tables and on my Twitch streams for a little while, is you can only ever have one. If you are to get another inspiration while you already have one banked, you have to deflect it to another member of the party, which is nice. That means you can share around. But if everyone is full and you would otherwise gain inspiration... It's lost to the ether. Which encourages you to use it as often as you can get it because there's a reasonable certainty that, you know, there will be another one at some point in the near future. And you lose them on a long rest now. So it really is use it or lose it because if you go to sleep, if your character goes to sleep with one of these in their back pocket, it is not there in the morning. Right. Uh, the whole system seems to be set up to go from a accessory option available for Dungeon Master use to a now an integral mechanic for the next edition. There are multiple ways to generate it, and you're highly incentivized to use it. By the way, let's put it in reverse real quick, just to touch on something. We said that only player characters generate inspiration when they roll a 20 on a d20 test. Right, and there's something else that only player characters get to do. Is that what you're, where you were going with that? Yes, that is exactly where I was going with that. And let me tell you, I'm mad about it. <laughs> so I'll, I'll let you talk about it because I don't know if I could get through it. So here's the funny thing about d20 tests when it comes to combat. Dungeons & Dragons has if for many editions, if not its entire history, enjoyed the concept of critical hits, which is when you roll a 20 when attacking another creature, you're going to get some extra damage. The way that that is expressed in 5th edition is that however many damage dice you would roll, you would now roll twice that many. In 1D&D, they have made multiple changes to that system. The first being that critical hits can only be achieved by player characters. The second change... Oh, that's, let's not move on from that. Oh. <laughs> no, <laughs> no, that I, no, I am I'll, the dungeon master here. I roll a lot of attack rolls let, for things that aren't the player characters. I'll, and let me tell you, if we're going to not be able to crit player characters anymore, I am expecting stronger monsters to be able to challenge the party a little more fully. It may not seem like a lot, but that is a great threat, a great ever-present looming danger that something that is kind of a threat could crit you and mess your character up. And now, according to 1D&D, that's gone. The damage that you are taking from a monster is the same damage you will always take from that monster, at least within the same range, with no real surprises. You know, this is actually one of the changes that I think, not having tested it myself, I can see where they're coming from, and I think I am generally in favor of it. And let me tell you why. Because when we ran The Lost Minds of Fandelver, 
and my first attempt at DMing, in my first session, in my first combat, a lonely little goblin crit your sorcerer and downed them. Yeah, I, that was thrilling to me. <laughs> but maybe not as thrilling to you. You can well, you can see how hopefully you can hopefully see how for other players that might not be as thrilling a prospect. And as a dungeon master, that is a consequence that I was not intending to put on you in the very first round of the very first combat on my very first attack roll to drop a player character. So what they are instead planning to do with 1D&D is to give the monsters more recharge abilities, I think is what they're currently conjecturing about, is that the DM will then have the option to use these stronger abilities on the players, but that it won't happen by chance. They're not going to accidentally eliminate a character like I did to Martyr in that first session. That's going to be something that can be done with intent. First of all, I'm only looking at what's in the playtest material here. That is, as far as what is actually in black and white, erroneous hearsay. Just it's erroneous hearsay from the people actually making the game. <laughs> yeah, that would have been uh, Jeremy Crawford in his interview with Kenrick. That, that's the direction they're looking to go, yeah. Second of all, though, if you're talking about recharge abilities, unless they've changed the way that recharge abilities work for monsters, you still have to roll to get that recharge. Right. So there's still an element of chance. And if we're not afraid of chance, why are we afraid of critting? Well, the chance is whether or not you have the option to use it again, not whether or not it happens. And that is the direction that they're looking to go with it. Um, I'm not personally a big fan of recharge abilities because when I want them, they're not there. But, you know, the same could also... They come about more often than critting, Yeah, and the same could also be said of critical hits. You know, when you want them, you know, for dramatic purposes, they're not always there. But they're they're trying to put more tools in the dungeon master's pocket rather than just subject you to the same chance that your players are being subjected to. You say subject, I hear opportunity. <laughs> right. You know, because the dungeon master is a player too, and you want to enjoy yourself. But I think the consensus being here, or at least the proposed consensus here, being that that's not something that most people enjoy, Rob. <laughs> Look, it's always <laughs> exciting to roll a 20 and always exciting to be a criti- get a critical hit, no matter who you are. And that's just as true for the Dungeon Master as player characters. Well, let me take some of the wind out of that sail for you. Because I don't know if you've really dug into the rest of the implications of this critical hit text here. Uh, I really did struggle to make it past that sentence we just discussed. Okay. over the next few minutes i'm gonna make critical hits a lot less exciting for you as a player character um first off let's just cover the fact that you can only score a critical hit with a weapon attack or an unarmed strike that means you can no longer crit on an eldritch blast you can no longer crit on a firebolt and you can no longer crit on inflict wounds or anything like you did in that campaign It is no longer the purview of spellcasters. It is exclusively for weapon-wielding and unarmed striking martial characters. With that, I'm I'm not... I don't hate that, because it kind of stinks to be the martial guy in a party of spellcasters. A crit on a spell is huge. That that gets out of control. That is actually problematic. There, There was a crit on a friendly NPC in one of my campaigns not that long ago 
that they could more likely have survived if it was just a normal hit. Uh, they didn't know who they were attacking at the time. But for a weapon, it would have been a much smaller deal, and it would have happened at much closer range, and maybe that whole situation could have been avoided. I, I feel like anything that's handed to the martial classes in the game is fair enough. You know, like, these guys have a lot going against them, or rather they don't have as much going for them. Well, as a concept, I am also in favor of differentiating the spellcasters from the martial characters. And as someone who is fairly new to playing spellcasting characters, I don't know that critical hits are necessary for them, like they are for martial characters. But... To your point from earlier, everyone loves rolling a 20 and everyone loves rolling extra dice, and now spellcasting characters no longer have that. Oh no, I'm, I'm not saying that I love that decision. I, I think everyone, everyone should be able to crit. But that particular aspect of these decisions does not upset me as much as the others. Maybe I should put it that way. Yeah. Uh, I was more in favor of taking it from Dungeon Masters and the Monsters than I was for taking it from the Spellcasters, because as a Dungeon Master, I appreciate the philosophy that they're looking for. As a player character, I like throwing down some extra damage, and even though I enjoy the intent to differentiate the two different fighting styles, martial characters of certain builds and levels can really drop some damage, and it can be on par with, or even easily exceeding, some spellcaster builds. So, I don't really know that this was something, that this was a bone that had to be thrown. I'm reading now farther down the critical hits, and I think I see the next thing you're going to be excited to talk about, which is, by the verbiage that currently exists in this PDF... Paladins and rogues are going to enjoy critical hits a lot less. Yes. So that's the third point, is that when you get a critical hit, it does double the dice of exclusively the weapon that you hit with. Which is to say that if you hit someone with a critical hit with your rapier, as a rogue who had advantage and now would otherwise get sneak attack, you are now dealing 2d8 plus your sneak attack an undoubled, unmodified sneak attack. The only thing that got doubled was your rapier's base dice. Or if you hit or a paladin who hits someone with a greatsword and you get a crit, you're only doubling that 2d6 to a 4d6. Smite or no smite. Now, I very much expect that the opportunity to crit on those class features will be added in as a line of those class features. They've changed the way that they've worded it, but they could also change the way that they word sneak attack, and they could change the way that they define divine smite and such as that. Right. And it does say you roll the damage dice of the weapon or unarmed strike a second time and add the second roll as damage to the target, implying that there is more than one die, which is only true of a couple of weapons as they currently exist in 5e. So either they have plans to change the way that weapons work, or they have plans to change the way that the dice work and the class features work that incorporate into attacks. I don't think we're going to be losing those ridiculous surprise sneak attacks in 1D&D. Right. I, I, don't, I don't believe that. I strongly suspect that that is going to be the case, and that's how they're going to redo it. Because if they don't, I mean, we are not going to see a lot of paladins and rogues. <laughs> <laughs> but this is one of those ways that it's it's going to be very interesting, weird, and difficult to, for this to be completely backwards compatible, right? Because if you use this system on an old rogue, 
that old rogue is going to have a bad time. This this critical hit mechanic, if, you, if you're someone who enjoys rolling a whole bunch of D6s on sneak attack as your rogues, then this is pretty much going to necessitate you to use the new critical hit system and the new rogue. Which, I mean, if you're buying the book to use the rules, then you're buying the book to use the rules. I don't think that that's a, a particular deal breaker, just another notch in the bedpost of this not being fully backwards compatible. Although, to be fair, they only really claimed that it would work with the modules. So that would possibly still be true. There are some people out there who are concerned about the balance of doing that, but I guess that's neither here nor there. And it's definitely not what we're talking about right now because we're talking about critical hits. This is a hard thing to stay on. <laughs> this is a hard thing to have a linear discussion about. Well, I think I think that basically covers it, yeah? Uh, as far as critical hits are concerned, yes. Uh, personally, none of this is a deal breaker for me. I'm excited about more, some parts of it more than others. I personally am kind of okay with this whole rolling a one critical fail and rolling a 20 success because they've codified it and now it's not a homebrew i'm excited to try it out and see how it works critical hits are a big case of the feel bads if you're a paladin or a rogue but we expect them to fix that later on i'm personally in favor of the changes they made for dungeon masters less so on spellcasters but uh, you know i i really just kind of want to play this and see how it works out so you, you've done a lot of looking into how other people feel about these particular topics. I, I've just read them and formed my own opinions, and granted, I did not read too carefully over them, as we've already displayed, but something that they have done that's made me very happy is they have changed the way spell lists are divided. Yes, yes, they have. They are doing basically what I have done in my world-building since the beginning, it's just the way that I logically divided spells. Rather than saying these are bard spells, and some of the bard spells are also wizard spells, and some of the wizard spells are also sorcerer spells, which has some crossover with the bard spells, but not all of them. And then divine soul sorcerers can cast sorcerer spells and some cleric spells. They did away with all of that. They simplified it so much by dividing all spells into three lists. Arcane, divine, and primal which is almost word perfect how i've been dividing them in my homebrew worlds which was arcane divine and natural magics and frankly primal is just a better word for that and i'm going to start using it now <laughs> but it is functionally going to divide the spell lists on those three lines if you were an arcane caster you can pick from the arcane spell list if you are a primal caster you pick from the primal spell list you don't have to worry about the specifics of your class anymore. Right. And, you know, when we had our episodes on magic, however long ago that was, man, it's it's got to be months and months and months. I mentioned that when I was designing my homebrew world, that one of the considerations that I took into account was where the different types of magic came from and how important that was to me from a, a world and lore building perspective. And that is exactly what they've done here, and I really appreciate that. The arcane spells are the ones that are typically cast by your bards, your sorcerers, your wizards, your warlocks. Um, did I forget someone in there? I feel like uh, artificers. artificers. Yeah. Uh, divine spells being the purview of clerics and paladins and primal spells being rangers and druids. So far, they've only given us the cantrips and the first level spells. And to, to go ahead and quiet the fears of anyone who hasn't seen this list, there is some overlap. So there are some spells that you will find in multiple lists. 
things like Guidance, which is historically a Druid cantrip and a Cleric cantrip, does appear both on the Primal and the Divine spell lists. So they're not necessarily taking anything away from anyone by making these distinctions. Notably, also, there are some spells that are missing, such as the Warlock's Eldritch Blast. So I think that whenever we do go through and finally see these new classes being released to us in whatever schedule they're released on, you're going to see things like Eldritch Blast listed as a class feature rather than as a spell, because these spell lists are going to be accessible by all of these different classes, and they're also going to be accessible for people to dip into with things like the Magic Initiate feat. Yeah, they're kind of like public domain now. Like, they're nobody in particular's purview, but I kind of like that, because there's supposed to be a commonality between how arcane casters access magic, and there are probably limitations that come with that particular approach, and ditto for divine spellcasters, and ditto for primal spellcasters, and it's going to really open up the ranger class, I think, to be able to pull from the same spell list as the druid, who is a full caster. Right. And ditto for the paladin. All of our half-caster classes are going to change dramatically with these lists, I think. Yeah, they're going to get some incidental buffs from an expanded spell list, which is one of the main things that have improved certain subclasses over others as 5th edition has progressed is their access to expanded spell lists. That's why the Divine Soul Sorcerer was so huge when it first came out. And that's why the Aberrant Mind Sorcerer and the Clockwork Soul Sorcerer are now the top tier ones because they get just a bunch more spells than anyone else's because they get not only to choose them from these lists, but they get a bunch that are just added to their repertoire without taking up their spells known. It, anyway, Sorcerers were just a really good example of this because quite honestly, they're you know some of the more recent characters that I've made and they're, they just get very few spells. Hell, bards get the magical secrets ability as a class feature in 5e that lets them dip into any other class's spell catalog. That's going to be a perhaps smaller list uh, because, well, sorry, that is to say, instead of reaching into any individual class, they would, under this philosophy, just get to dip into divine or primal spells, which granted is going to still have the same effect. It gives them access to the entire catalog, but it's interesting how little things like that may change with this reclassification. Well, I think that this is a really good move from a simplification perspective, from a lore perspective. This is another one of those just very necessary cleanup steps. Because the Magic Initiate feat was so damn confusing before. Because <laughs> you had to pick a different class to pick your spells from. Now you have three Magic Initiate feats. An arcane one, a divine one, and a primal one. And then you can pick what your spell casting ability is for those. It just doesn't get simpler than that. If you want to be a, a gish, you want to be a fighter, someone who goes in wielding sword and shield, but who also has a couple of spells in their back pocket for out-of-combat stuff, this is the way you do it, and it just couldn't get simpler. Speaking of things that we can pretty well agree are out-and-out out improvements over the way that 5e worked, which is somewhat of a limited list for the rest of this PDF, you, I know, were very excited about, weirdly, grappling. Something that you never do in 5e, and now maybe you are excited to do if we played under these playtest rules. Yeah, okay, grappling, we've talked about this on the channel before, uh, when we were going over feats, I believe. Grappling is just such 
a waste of time in Dungeons and Dragons 5th edition. It is a difficult status to inflict on someone. It is a simple status to escape. It is not even that beneficial once you finally apply it. It's basically just a waste of time. Uh, there are certain classes I have found and certain builds that you can do that try to make something of it, but the amount of effort that you put into doing it is probably just better spent elsewhere. But this one D&D playtest material has taken such great lengths to make that matter that grappling is now good, guys. The grappled condition is now good. Escaping a grapple makes more sense. The and the tavern brawler feat is good. I I, I don't even I barely know what how to process that. <laughs> So let's go over the grappled condition real quick. I'm not going to dwell on this too long, but I, this is just evidence of the team at Wizards of the Coast noticing that a thing did not work as intended and taking significant steps to fix it. So, so let's just talk about what being grappled looks like, and then we'll talk about how to apply it and how you can get out. The grapple condition means that your speed is set at zero and cannot change. While you're grappled, you have disadvantage on attack rolls against any target other than the person or creature that is grappling you. The person who is grappling you can drag or carry you, but the grappler suffers the slowed condition while moving unless you are two or more sizes smaller than the grappler. Now, the fact that there is a slowed condition is its own thing that is just another example of the cleanup, and I, we're not going to go into all of those things, but... They've, they've expanded the list of conditions, and it is just so much easier to understand now. Uh, finally, escaping a grapple is done by a dexterity or strength saving throw against the grappler's escape DC at the end of each of your turns, ending the condition on a success. Uh, and it also ha can be ended in other ways, as usual, if the grappler gets incapacitated or if either of you are separated from the other by forced movement. This is just such a strict improvement upon the way that grappling used to work, where it was contested athletics checks that took your action to set up. It was athletics checks to initiate the grapple, and you could escape with your acrobatics or athletics skills, which did give skills a place in a combat scenario. But now it means you don't, if you're worried about being grappled, you don't need to take proficiency in those things. But it also means that if your class, which I assume proficiencies and saving throws are still going to be tied to classes if your class is bad at it you're just going to be bad at it all <laughs> well you do have the option to use strength or dexterity so hopefully you have one of those in your back pocket and you know earlier you were saying yeah, if you make your character be bad at those things maybe it maybe you just live with it <laughs> well that's when you are choosing where your ability score improvements go not when your talents are defined by your class uh fair enough Applying the grapple is a lot easier, too, because now you can make a grapple check every time you hit someone's AC with an unarmed strike. Anytime you reach your open hand out to hit someone, instead of opting to hit them, you now have the option every time to either shove or grapple them. Because plate armor makes people way harder to grab. <laughs> Uh, maybe you oil yourself up when you go. I don't know. I don't uh, know how that works. Um, and no, and I'm, I'm, I'm not saying that it's not a mechanically good improvement. It's just funny to me. Right, right. Well, th applying the grappled condition is so much easier because now instead of taking, you know, your action to do it, now it is just one of the things that you can do with an attack. 
So if you have multiple attacks on your turn, like say as a monk, you make multiple unarmed strikes, that is now multiple attempts that you can make to grapple someone each turn. That I'm with you on. That just makes sense. And I'm delighted that it's in there. It probably should have been in there sooner. Because, again, like you said, grappled is kind of a lousy condition to set up. It doesn't have, it didn't, anyway, in 5e, make a huge difference in the combat most times, in most scenarios. Mm -hmm. And it wasted a lot of your turn, especially since it was probably one of your martial characters trying to initiate it in the first place. And there's so much more they could be doing with their turn. Now, it's just a piece of the pie. Now, grappled did really hurt in one specific scenario, and that's if you could get pinned down if you could be both grappled and prone that became a very big problem in fifth edition something that i've been subjected to a couple of times thanks to a dm on that play-by-post server that i've been on but now instead of having to use my action to make a check to attempt to escape i can use my action as i normally would in combat and then an escape is made automatically for me at the end of my turn while, you know, like you said, some characters are going to be better or worse at it than others, and the fact that that saving throw proficiency, you know, may be a little bit harder to get than just a skill proficiency, I appreciate the fact that I still have my action on each of my turns in between getting to make that check. That's going to be kind of a two-edged sword, because that's not one of the things that is relegated just to player characters. So if you go through all the trouble to grapple someone, they might just pop out and also get their opportunity to punish you for doing so. But I'm on record as saying that inflicting player characters with conditions that limit their abilities is not part of the fun for me. I like to be able to do a lot with my turn when I get it because I waited a while for it to come back around on the initiative order and I had to wait for somebody to read through their whole spell list to figure out which one was most applicable. And I think it's been 45 minutes and I kind of have to pee, but I'd like to do something before (laughs) I have to do that. You don't like casting slow and Tasha's mind whip on your players? I, I don't like removing their actions. I don't like removing their movement. I don't like them feeling impotent on their turns. So the fact that they can still get to do stuff and then not have to have spent their action to be able to pop out of it, I think is a good trade that the monsters get the same courtesy. I think that's just kind of good for everybody. Does that make sense? I don't know. Yeah, that makes sense. I'm just, I just appreciate the fact that they took something that was never worth doing, made it worth doing, and then gave you more opportunities to do it. And then in so doing, gave you a less punishing way to escape it should it be inflicted on you. I think this is just good design. I don't know if this is an original thought on behalf of the one D&D team or whether this is something they borrowed from another role-playing game, but it was it was well-conceived or well-borrowed in my book. So with that impression, let's let's broaden that. There is more in this document that we haven't talked about. I encourage our listeners to go and read it. There's some interesting stuff, stuff that I'm kind of excited about that we haven't talked about because it's not as... Not as big picture, not as large of a shift, shall we say. Right, yeah. It's it's a 21-page document, guys. So, you know, and I don't think that we could talk sufficiently about the things that interested us and still cover everything that was in here. So we just kind of hit the highlights. Again, this is our first conversation about it. We're just trying to format this in such a way that it is entertaining, hopefully, to listen to as Rob and I just share our natural thoughts on the matter. So I'll get yours in a moment because I am curious because we haven't talked about this before. 
my general feeling with this stuff is it's not different enough from 5e for me to be very scared of it or very excited about it. It's quite similar. They're doing a little bit of cleanup, but it's cleanup that I've already done and that most Dungeon Masters have already done. We know how to make 5e work for us. Do we need the reprint for these few changes? And don't we kind of wind up in the same place in spite of them? This is not 6th edition. This this feels very much like a 5.5, and I feel like I'm about to be paying for new books that are mostly the same. But that's it. I also don't find anything really objectionable about it. The, the changes that are made, if run well, are fine. Some of them are a little bit exciting, a little bit good. It's just not a big enough glimpse into what is coming for me to be wholly for or wholly against it. It just feels familiar. What What about you? What are your thoughts coming down to the bottom of page 21? I'm fairly similar. I am excited to see what one D&D has in store for us because it feels like Dungeons & Dragons 5th Edition Plus. What is that plus? Pretty much homebrew. Table rules that a bunch of people are already implementing. That a large percentage of the changes that I am seeing here sound like simplification, cleanup, and codifying the table rules that a lot of people are already using. Was I personally using all of those table rules? No. Would I ever have tried out those table rules? Probably not. Uh, I am a person who really likes to play as much as possible, rules as written. But that is why I get excited when books like Tasha's Cauldron of Everything are released that give me more options within the rules as written. And I feel like, by and large, that's what 1D&D is all about. There are a couple of fixes, there's a lot of cleanup, but by and large it is allowing for more options. It is in some ways allowing for more chance, like on the D20 tests, and in some ways allowing for less, such as the Dungeon Masters not being able to crit. But by and large, I feel pretty positively about everything that we've been shown so far. Granted, this is a very small slice of the very initial process of one side of the table, but I do think that it shows a good mindset and a positive direction for the game overall. So these are, once again, just our first impressions. My mind is not fully made up on all this stuff. I dare say Steve's is probably not either. We would love it if you would read these for yourselves, come into our Discord, and join the discussion about these changes, because we're very interested to know what you think about them, what you see that we don't, what is positive, what is promising, and what is dangerous and potentially a misstep on the behalf of Wizards of the Coast. The link to that Discord is down in the description of this episode. I would strongly encourage any of our listeners to come on there and talk to me about how you feel about Ardlings, a new player race that was introduced in the playtest material. We are not taking the time to talk about all those things here, but I would like to hear your opinions about them. And if you would like to hear my opinions about some of the other feats and things, that would be a great theater for us to do so. There's a lot that I'm excited about in this sneak preview, and there's a lot of other things that are mildly concerning. Not with the playtest material itself, but with some of the other announcements that they've had coming out, like all the th- reasons that you should and shouldn't be excited about the proprietary virtual tabletop. 
that Wizards of the Coast is developing. Definitely not talking about that on here on this episode because of how long it's been going, but that's another topic we can get into if you want. It's another one that I've done a lot of research on. If Discord just isn't your platform, or if you want to reach out to us on a different preferred social media, you can find links to everywhere we are down in the description of the episode. Come check us out. Steve posts memes and stuff. It's fun. That's that's pretty much the only reason I go online these days in general, podcast, personal, or otherwise. Or if you want to see me practicing what I preach and actually running the game of Dungeons & Dragons 5th edition to the best of my ability... I stream several times a week on Misty Mountain Streaming's Twitch channel. There are lots of ways to get your fill of Rob, the D&D wannabe, throughout the week. But if you're looking to get any more of my opinions, then I guess you'll just have to come back in two weeks to see what we're talking about on our next episode of Bardic Twinspiration. Catch you then! The outro music you're listening to right now is called Mega Epic, and the intro music is called Super Epic. Both were composed by the wonderfully talented Alexander Nakarada and utilized under a Creative Commons license. If you enjoyed our content, please consider leaving us a five-star rating and review on your listening app of choice. To keep up with us on social media, look us up on facebook.com forward slash bardic twinspiration and on Twitter at btwinspiration. Want to interact with us directly? Come join our Discord. After all, who are we if not people who are willing to roll the dice on making some new friends? Links in the description. Come check it out. I got my hat is all. Surely the hat doesn't make that much of a difference. I don't know. I'm not risking it after my garbage recording the other time, so... Okay, are you ready? I'm ready. You want me to start or you? Welcome back, friends, adventurers, players, and DMs, to another episode of Bardic Twinspiration, a topical Dungeons & Dragons podcast where I and my brother talk about... Well, I already said Dungeons & Dragons, didn't I? That, that sounds kind of dumb. <laughs> and it sounded so good up to that point that I don't want to leave the flub in. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, go ahead, do it over. Welcome back, friends and adventurers, to another episode of Bardic to Inspiration, a podcast, a topical podcast where my, what, what, where did you, oh, you jumped in players and DMs after I said friends and adventurers, <laughs> didn't you? Swap places. No, I got this. You just, you just drop in when you dropped in before. <laughs> there was no opportunity. Welcome back, friends and adventurers. Oh, you want me to say your thing now? <laughs> I was only leaving it in there because it sounded like good when you it said sounded, it, not because it, it needed to be said. <laughs> Here we go again. Okay, go ahead. I'm ready this time. Will be changed. What seems like it's coming down the pike? Is it pike? I think so, yeah. let me see. I've, always, I've always thought of like coming down the pipe. Let me see. Coming Am I crazy? Down the pike. Pike. What the heck does that mean? Down the pike or down the pipe, however. The original phrase, down the pike, means in the course of events or in the future. It is short for turnpike. It refers metaphorically something coming down the road. Well, okay. I've, I've always heard of, like, the pipeline, you know, yeah. from, like, a, a business perspective, and I really thought that that's where it was coming from. Okay. So... As oh, we were saying, but... 
now now the pike has a use after our last episode. <laughs> yeah, it needed one. That's one of the reasons they're so popular. Yeah, po- popular. Great move. I think that's good. I'm not afraid of my par- character. I'm not afraid of my party being full of characters who are talented. Oh god, where did my background go? That is disturbing. Is it over here? No, the background on my computer is gone. Hmm. What happened? Right, and I've mentioned back when we talked about the different types of magic uh, in that episode how... Right, and you know... I stream several times a week on Misty Mountain Streaming's Twitch channel. Our back catalog of our episodes are on YouTube. Links to those in the description of the video. If you haven't got it by now, check out the description of the video and click all the <laughs> Descri- links down there. Description all of, the of them are useful. Description of the video. Uh, description of description the- of the video. Just drop Sorry. those in there every once in a while. Des- description of the episode. Oh shoot! Did you what say video? Oh, I think you did. You say video because I think you said video, and then I started doing. You kept that. saying description <laughs> of the video. <laughs> anyway, Des- below the episode, of the wherever episode. you're listening, description of the episode. There are words. Description of the episode. Click them. Uh, no, don't try lots, and come back from that like I did. Made lots the mistake now. and l- I bet you if you go back and listen to it, it'll be in there. <laughs> and you, yeah, but you you made the same mistake. Is all I'm saying. I was just repeating what you said. Anyway, 